Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. What's the best way to achieve societal harmony in a place in which groups of people with different identities are living together? Broadly, there are two schools of thought on how to go about this. Some say integration, which to varying degrees can be forced upon a minority, and others argue for multiculturalism, in which minority communities are encouraged to express themselves and others are expected to avoid causing them offence. Well, co-authors Peter Ballant and Patty Leonard have tackled this debate in a book, Debating Multiculturalism, Should There Be Minority Rights? And their disagreement isn't quite that stark, but we'll hear uh, just how they do disagree and express that in the book. So first of all, this is very transcontinental. Uh, Welcome, Peter, in Australia. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Patty, in Canada. Uh, Hi, thanks for having me too. And I'm speaking from Wales, so we're all gathered uh, by this amazing technology. And yeah, as I say, Patty, it's an unusual structure. You sort of respectfully disagree with each other. You both lay out your positions and then have a chapter where you sort of thrash it out. That's right. So why did you decide to do that? The idea is undergraduate students, graduate students will be able to see that it is possible to have reasonable views which are quite different, which which manifest different rights or different values or different goods, and that, the, and that those views are reasonable, so that there's a wide range of options for which people can choose. Um, and so so uh, Peter and I um, have been friends for a long, long time, and we have always disagreed, sometimes respectfully, sometimes less so, but um, but we're on different sides of many of the of issues that are of central concern to both of us. And so this felt like a natural forum in which to, in which to sort of explore our differences with respect to multiculturalism in particular. Yeah, and it works very well. So, Peter, can you just lay out your basic view on on this issue of how to deal with minorities? Absolutely. So, mine is pretty much a straightforwardly liberal argument um, in which the claim of anyone to follow their unique way of life is seen as no more important than anybody else's claim to follow their unique way of life. By this, I mean the claims of minority members are equivalent to the claims of majority members. So no one has a particular claim to special treatment. And as I've shown in the book, that most, if not all, of the claims for minorities for some what's considered special treatment come about because of the way that majorities are somehow privileged. So if the majorities weren't privileged, the minorities would no longer need and have a claim for minority rights. Right. And so you think that uh, resolves the issue. And Patty, what is your, well, why did, before we get into any disagreements, what's your basic position? Many of the accommodations which typically travel with multiculturalism 
which include uh, uniform modifications, linguistic accommodations, and so on. Many of these are actually required to achieve what I think is the central objective in a political society, which is political inclusion. And so I defend a whole range of multicultural accommodations precisely because I think that what we're trying to do in a democratic society is to make sure that every person who lives here in any particular democratic society can have their voice heard and to know that when they express their preferences or their views, that those preferences or views are taken seriously in the political space. So political inclusion is the objective for you, but Peter, not really for you, because your objective is more uh, equal treatment. Absolutely. Mine is definitely more equal treatment and whether barriers to people wanting to do things are justified or not. It's it's very liberal in that sense that if somebody wants to do something and there is not a good reason stopping them, then they should be allowed to do it. It's it's very traditional liberal in that regard. So can you can you both talk me through an example? I mean, you, you mentioned an obvious one, a sort of classic one in the book, which is whether Sikhs should be exempt from motorbike helmet laws in i don't know london well in britain and canada or australia uh so peter what's your view on that i don't have a direct this is exactly what should happen in this case all, all i want to say is that whatever should happen it should happen for everybody uh, so that if if there's a decision on safety grounds that turbans are not sufficient then that's a decision that should be made on safety grounds and everybody should have to wear a helmet if there's a decision that uh, there's alternative things. People should better make choices for themselves uh, in in whether their heads are protected or not. Then that should be something that should be up for everybody. Whether you wear a turban as your alternative headwear or not is entirely up to you. So it's basically whatever the decision is, it's a decision for everybody. And we don't make exemptions for particular types of headwear or particular types of culture. It's it's generalised in either way. And, and Patty, was your desire to have Sikhs included in the system and treated with respect and listened to and so on mean that you would think it's okay for them to argue that uh, you know, they should be allowed to use their turbans rather than helmets? That's actually a that's a good question, and 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 actually, I don't believe that in the book I consider the question of motorcycle helmets, but I do. I am more concerned about the question of wearing helmets in construction sites, for example. So if you have a rule that says every person who works on a construction site must wear a helmet, then there's a particular good, a high quality job that Sikhs are excluded from because because they have the faith-based requirement that they wear Sikhs, at least or that they wear helmet. Um, sorry, that they wear turbans, at least the men do. Then Sikh men are excluded from from that opportunity. And so I take it that Peter's answer is we have to make a blanket rule, but I think that's a mistake because I think that what we should do in this particular case is say, look, it's a valuable good, this type of employment. It ought to be available to everybody. There are certain safety requirements which in general we require because, and they have a whole series of, of, of really good justifications for why, why helmets ought to be required in those cases. And then what I say is that there are particular cultural commitments that Sikhs have, which weigh in favor of exempting them from that particular practice. So I'm more comfortable with an exemption-based strategy precisely because I think that there are only going to be a subset of cases where we want to give exemptions to general rules, which we think are good ones. So we do think that protecting the safety of the population is a good one. And in some very small number of cases, because culture is so important to people, we're willing to make exemptions. And I think it would be a mistake to conclude from that that everybody should be permitted to abandon helmets uh, or to, uh, because we, ha we have these, um, in general, operational safety requirements in construction sites. So I say because we want 
seeks to be sufficiently included in political spaces, in economic spaces, which are valuable. Therefore, in that case, an exception should be made. Yeah, and there's one interesting bit in that where you say you know, culture is so important, and this is one of your themes, that culture is so important that it should be given really very great respect and uh, there should be a lot of flexibility shown by others to respect uh, people's cultures. But, Peter, I suspect that's less important for you, is it? I don't say culture is either important or not important. I, I think the big issue with culture is it hasn't been solved in this area. The classic what is culture is still an open question. I think culture is very, very important for, for most people, including myself. It's just it's very hard to measure what it is, what its important is, what its importance is for different people, and what its relative importance is. And when we start to require people to couch their claims in cultural ways, like I want to do this because it's important for my culture, we know people construct things in a way which is relevant to the situation. They're like, here is, I need to dress up my, my culture in this way so that I can get this particular particular right or particular thing coming through. And I guess, once again, my starting point is not there. It is like, if somebody wants to do something and there's not a good reason stopping them, they should be able to do it. It's really quite straightforward like that. So if somebody wants to, let, let, let's say, there is an option for alternative headwear in, in, in the seat case before, then then anybody should be able to wear this alternative headwear. That that, that should be happened. Everyone should be able to take on this generalised exemption. I don't think people, we need to have people construct their claims in terms of culture. So it's not that I think that culture is unimportant. I think it's frankly really important. It's just it's very hard to measure what it is. Uh, and when we do start to try and take it into political consideration, we, we, we construct and reify what it means and that changes what goes on. I'm not sure which of you uh, it was who wrote about this German immigrant who passed the nationality test. You know, someone tried to get into Germany and had to pass the nationality test and didn't want to uh, shake hands with one of the women there. Who, whose was that? That's, that's mine. That's right. Can you just talk us through the story and what happened and what your take on it is? case was of a, an immigrant to Germany who was of Lebanese origin, and he be believed as a part of his commitment to the Islamic religion that he ought not to touch people of the opposite sex. So after living in Germany for at least a decade, he was a medical doctor practicing medicine in Germany, was fluent in German, passed the test, uh, the citizenship test, in order to become German, the final stage in his naturalization to German citizenship was that he had to attend an oath ceremony. You sort of, and at the end of that moment, when citizenship is conferred upon you officially, at least in Germany, you were to shake hands with the officiant. In the case of this gentleman, the officiant was a woman. He refused to shake her hand and he was denied German citizenship as a result. So, so in responding to this case, what I think that, uh, I mean, I think, I think that the gender equality consideration is a real one. He immediately said in the media that he actually, as a matter of religious faith, did not want to touch any person, not just women, although nobody thought that that was a, was a valid claim, because if there are different treatments between men and women, that's something that is at least traditional to some forms of Islam, uh, uh, the idea that men and women have different separate and, and distinct roles and relations to each other have to be sort of managed by, by religious convictions and norms and so on. So my thought about this case is that the refusal to allow an accommodation denies the would-be German citizen inclusion in the relevant way. So that I think we are, in general, can see that the taking of an oath in this case is not undermined by the unwillingness to, to shake hands with the officiant, even though she's a woman, 
and that his record of behavior suggests that he's perfectly willing to live consistently and in conformity with German values in general. He's not a criminal. He doesn't refuse to treat women patients. He interacts with women in the office environment all the time. And then secondarily, this case went through the courts right as COVID was happening. Uh, I mean, COVID is still happening, but right as, as we were sort of beginning to develop new norms in relation to how to interact in the, in the face of the spread of a, a transmissible disease. And so many, many countries, including Germany, stopped having the handshake as a requirement for the citizenship oath ceremony in that time for a, for a, for a period of time. And so it, if for health reasons we're allowed to do it, it seems to me consistent to say, well, actually, then it's clear that handshaking is not an essential part of the oath ceremony and that this person, this German, this would-be German citizen should, in fact, be allowed to naturalize. What about the, the argument that, you know, that the person who whose hand has been rejected and feels offended as a result, I mean, she wouldn't be offended if it was a health reason. She is offended if it's this cultural difference is the reason. And that's part of the problem. So her offence has to be taken into account, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I take the question. And of course, of course, one of the reasons that we see offence is because the way that the case is interpreted is that there's a man who's coming up and is looking at a woman and is refusing to shake her hand. Right? So, we, so we see that as a personal moment. But I think that's the wrong way to think about it. So if you take a different kind of case in the Canadian context, we've had a lot of questions about you can, whether you can take the oath ceremony if your face is covered. So we have, so because many Muslim women in Canada continue to cover their faces for, again, for religious and cultural reasons. And so we have this sort of general idea that when you give the oath ceremony, it should be with an open face to signal your openness and tolerance to the to Canadian society. And it's been a, quite a large debate. And the answer to the question ultimately has just been that if there are security reasons, women who cover their faces can be asked to show ID. They can show their faces to other women before they take the oath. They can take the oath in an all-women space, uh, which would then uh, alleviate any of the sort of the challenges that are faced. And if you if you pre-prepare, then nobody's offended. Like I understand the sort of claim. Look, maybe people who engage in these practices are not committed to liberal democratic values associated with gender equality, and then I think we should consider that. Right? Was the German would-be German immigrant committed to gender inequality in problematic ways? Are women who cover their faces committed to gender inequality in particular ways? But they don't signal offense if they say in advance. These are my religious convictions. These are the obligations I have. And then in advance, Canada or Germany says, these are accommodations we're willing to make, not because people, not to, to protect inclusion, to protect welcoming, to protect, uh, to protect the integration of newcomers with different practices into our communities. And, and Peter, your problem with all this is going to be that you don't want the exception. You want the same rules for everyone. So you can see a problem here. Yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, in some ways, the, the example is a good one in bringing out our differences, but also in some ways, elides, elides one of the main issues here. So the example, if we go back to the German uh, German citizenship example, my point is brought out very nicely here, which is that what is necessary for citizenship? Uh, th this man passed his test against extremism. He passed his citizenship test with the best possible score. He took his oath. It seems the handshake is an unnecessary part, Paddy's already alluded to this, an unnecessary part of the procedure, and one that not only uh, is a problem for uh, people like himself, it's going to be a problem for germophobes and the COVID situation, Orthodox Jews, lots of other people, people that just don't want to shake hands. It's an unnecessary addition. Paddy 
in her part of the book would want to defend it from my reading because she's very strong on a shared public culture. The idea that handshaking is a form of public culture, that that it's something that should be protected and, and looked at. My, my push here would be we don't actually need this at all. We don't need this at all. Someone can become a citizen. They, they can do all the things that are required uh, without doing some sort of uh, handshaking or anything like that. So we don't need to grant an exemption. On my reading of Patty, she's obviously quite happy for this person just to be granted citizenship without the, without the handshake. I, I would say that nobody should have to shake hands in this situation. If handshaking is just sort of part of the formality at the end, if you don't want to shake hands, you shake hands. If you do, you do. It's not the, it shouldn't be part of the requirement. Building it in is privileging the majority way of life. It's saying this is the way we do things around here. We're going to add this extra thing on that that, that is privileging one way of life. What is the requirement for this particular thing? Citizenship, it's the test in this case and, and the oath. Once that's taken, everything else is on top. Asking for more things is privileging the majority of life. And going about solving the problem by granting this one person an exemption on religious grounds is just making it more complicated. Once again, it's going to go back to this construction of identity idea. Now, it seems to me both of you, therefore, are going to object to the argument made by many in Australia, in Canada, or maybe less so in Canada, but certainly in the UK, uh, that the only way to deal with different communities living together is for there to be greater integration and for basically the minorities to assimilate or integrate whatever word is used and to accept the values of the community in, in which they're, yeah, the majority community in which they're living. Uh, can I ask you both just to react to that argument, which is, you know, very much part of public discourse today? Well, what, Patty, why don't you start with what your response to it is? So, Owen, you're, you're, you're collapsing a distinction that I would like to draw between integration and something like assimilation. So I think what the goal is, is integration. I think that immigrants largely travel with values and norms that are almost identical to our own, and they carry with them cultural practices which are unfamiliar to us and which require, or what it require accommodation. So what I ordinarily think is that immigrants, I, I mean, I assume that immigrants are also all around you where you live. They're generally people who come who want to work, who want to have families, who want to send their kids to school, who want access to equal payment for equal work done, who uh, want to participate in politics, who want to join choirs and play soccer, right? I mean, immigrants are not people who are generally distinct from us, What, what, what from whoever us is. What immigrants sometimes do is they travel with practices which are unfamiliar. So before there was large-scale Muslim immigration to Canada, it was unfamiliar to see women covering their faces or even their heads. Before we had a large uh, Sikh immigration into Western Canada, it was unfamiliar for us to see uh, people wearing turbans, to see people wearing kirpans, and so on. And so we have all of these practices. So Peter is right in characterizing me this way. We have all these practices as part of the community that we're a part. He calls it the majority privilege and so on. I just think that communities in general adopt norms and shared values and they they they, they proceed in, a, in various kinds of ways. And immigrants are deeply desiring of participating in the community on equal terms. What multicultural accommodations do are precisely allow for the integration of newcomers and their practices, the cultural practices which are unfamiliar to us on fair terms. So I don't think that there's a question of assimilation. I think that assimilation, which means that immigrants must adopt all of our values and all of our practices, right? In Canada, it must mean that they, they can't eat chicken rogan gauche, they must eat poutine. So I don't think that that's 
the case. I think that over, I, I think that in general, people globally speaking share a wide range of values, preferences, norms, a desire to protect the rights of everybody, to have equal access to the goods of a community, and that there are shared norms and practices which they also want to adopt so far as they can without giving up religious and cultural commitments that they have traveled. Okay, so before, before I come to Peter on his view on this sort of argument about integration, I just want to push back on what you said, because there are more difficult cases, aren't there? I've just reported from a community in Middle England, let's say, you know, in the Midlands, which is very heavily concentrated with British Pakistanis. And there's a very important mosque in the area. There is also a rugby league field right by the mosque, the British Pakistani, very devout people who pay extra premiums on their houses to be close to this important mosque, could not tolerate seeing people playing rugby so close to the mosque and responded by putting broken glass on the try line so that uh, the players would cut themselves as they played the game. So in that case, you know, the, the picture you paint of uh, just slight differences and, you know, requirement for tolerance by the majority is not really relevant and doesn't answer what's happening in that community. What would you respond? How would you respond to that? Well, I mean, in that, I mean, that community, the answer is clear, at least the, the particular dimension of the case that you presented is that certain people are doing things with the, with the intention of harming others. So... That's not allowed. That I presume, uh, you know, um, I know. Well, it sort of was allowed. Actually, I mean, it, it, it went that way, <laughs> as it happens. The, uh, the the council backed down in face of the uh, pressure from the minority community and felt that, you know, for all the reasons you're talking about, political inclusion, multicultural values, and so on, that they 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 should they should give ground and actually gave the pitch to the mosque. So so you know there was great resentment in the in the white community in, in, in this, uh, this place about that. And, you know, quite a lot of bitterness. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's, it, it, all I'm trying to say is that there's intolerance on both sides. I'll, I'll step in. I mean, I, I yeah. think we, we get very excited by cases like you describe right. with, you know, with, with, with people of different colours coming in and doing things that sound dramatic and against the majority. Um, as Patty says, it's a pretty straightforward case of harm. They're causing harm to others. It should be stopped. But also, and this comes back to the earlier question of integration, um, societies are full of a lack of integration and, and we often only focus on this sort of cultural or racial element of it rather than a whole lot of other elements of it. Like I'm thinking of while you were talking, I'm thinking of cases in Australia. We, we have on, on the shores of Sydney Harbour, we have an, an amusement park, which has been there since the 1920s. Rich people moved in around the area and guess what they did? They used their power to shut down the amusement park because it affected their views and they didn't enjoy living near an amusement park anymore. I mean, the idea that communities get a little bit out of hand, whether they're white or, or brown or, or, or whatever race, whatever background, to try and shape the environment to the needs is nothing new. It's nothing particular to, 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 to immigrants. And as Paddy said earlier, immigrants are like us. They're, they're normal people who want, good, who want normal lives. And that means that they, they do things that we think are admirable and they do things that we think are, are, are often not admirable, like, like try and change their local environment to, to suit their purposes. So I think we get excited about these cases, but in fact, they're not that different. They're just similar to lots of other cases of, of integration. We just seem to be fixated on if particularly if there's a racial element. Yeah, I guess that's the question. Why do people get so excited about these cases when race or ethnicity or religion 
or basically broadly culture is involved you know, more excited than they would I suspect about the amusement park you know which is sort of like a, a, a real political issue but probably less charged people are sort of um, intimidated by difference and some forms of difference are more obvious than others so so racial differences are clear and when you introduce people to um, racial differences with which they're not familiar it's not it doesn't reflect poorly on them that their initial worry is maybe is their their initial sort of response might be one of fear. What's the question is whether or not they can recover from that fear to see all of the things that people in general share in common. In the particular case, I mean, in the particular case that you have described, Owen, or I mean, I describe them in the end of my book, which is how, what what is the right way to respond to democratic um, spaces to communities that actually don't want integration, that they continue, they, they live in Canada or the United States, Australia, the United Kingdom, and are actively seeking segregation or isolationism. And what, what, is the, what is the job of the rest of us? Should we exempt people from laws, from educational requirements, from vaccine requirements, because they have um, isolationist communities that, have, that live according to very different rules? And I think those cases are really... So I don't know whether the case that you're describing, Owen, is one of well, them. No, there are probably, well, it's probably a bit like that. But there are better cases like probably Orthodox Jewish communities in North London or the Amish in the United States, right, who, who are trying to live with their own legal arrangements or cultural arrangements. So yeah, exactly. A better right. example is what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, right. Good, yeah. really good example. So, I, so in the, in, the, in, the, in the concluding section of my, of my section of this book, I, I talk about the Orthodox communities in... New York City. And in particular, I talk about them in relation to how they responded to um, COVID requirements, because the COVID requirements had, uh, at least in the United States and Canada, I presume also in the in the UK and Australia, had um, put, put placed limits on gatherings. And, and for a period of time in New York City, in Canada, gatherings were limited at five people. But there are major Jewish uh, rights requirements that are done every single day that require 10 people to get together. And so immediately Jewish people, Orthodox Jewish people became unable, according to the law, to fulfill their religious requirements. And what the Jewish communities did in, the, the Orthodox Jewish communities did in New York City was they proceeded to carry out all of their religious obligations flouting the law. And so what should New York City have done or what did it do? So, it, I mean, it, it engaged in a variety of quite heavy-handed measures that uh, they broke up a funeral that was of, of an extremely important rabbi. Um, they went in with loudspeakers yelling. They arrested people. And my thought about that is, I mean, I had two thoughts in the book. One is, is, is the best way forward to showcase the strength of the state and to direct it at highly, a very small minority underprivileged community in the United States. So I'm, I'm not so excited about those kinds of displays of force against minorities who have no ways to protect themselves. But I think a second thing is important in that case, which is the Orthodox Jewish communities in New York City have a long history of finding that they are the victims of various kinds of problems at the hands of the state. So there's all kinds of negotiations about education that have happened, uh, in particular with respect to the education of um, Jewish children with developmental disabilities. Orthodox communities in New York City have struggled to educate those people because they have a sort of a standard yeshiva education system. But if, but if people have developmental dis delays in various ways, they can't do that kind of education, what should they do? So they constructed an arrangement with New York State to have those particular children educated in secular schools. It was a compromise for both sides because secular schools do not teach mandatory uh, religious 
requirements and so on and so forth. Okay, fine. So that seems like a good compromise. Immediately, at, once this compromise was reached, several of those students were, uh, because it was, a, it was a school in which there was served lunch, several of those students were served lunch that was not kosher, that included pork as part of their meal. And then those students were asked to perform in plays, uh, Christmas plays. And the Jewish communities, the Orthodox Jewish communities, were rightly, I think, upset. Uh, not because either of those things are particularly unreasonable in general, but because it is well known that those things would be violations of, of Jewish religious commitment. Everybody in the New York school system would know that particular fact. So it was clearly done as a signal of disrespect, lack of care of that community. And so there's a lack of trust between the Orthodox Jewish communities and the New York state government. It's a long history of that. So what I conclude from these cases and from your case is that what we need to be thinking about is what are the ways that in particular cases we can proceed so that political relations persist over time so that you can count on cooperation. Was there a way that the New York state could have had a conversation with Orthodox Jewish communities about the COVID requirements and how to protect New Yorkers collectively? Certainly there was, and they chose not to do that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Once you start saying this particular group can have an exemption, let's say it's Muslims or, or, or Amish or something like this, then you need to decide on who actually is one of those people. Who, who is the sort of person that can have this particular right? Is it is it self-described? Do you opt in? Do you uh, is it is it recognition by the community? Is there some objective list? We, we had this issue pops up all the time in Australia. It's popped up uh, recently in in the university environment with Indigenous students. Who actually is an Indigenous student? People are getting upset about people are self-proclaiming. There's this issue here of who actually is eligible for this particular exemption and how do we decide that? No, I take the point. And I presume that's becoming more and more relevant as these identity issues become more you know, prevalent. But on, on the uh, national minorities, you, you, you're both very interesting on the role of national minorities and what rights they should be afforded and whether they are distinct from... So we're talking indigenous populations, let's say Australia, Canada, wh- whether they're in the same position as minorities who've arrived more recently. So that's quite an interesting issue. Who wants to kick off on that? Yeah, so I guess one of the things that I realised in writing this book is that I, I wanted to make a clearer distinction between roughly immigrant groups, but, but other people with claims of culture, and national minorities, which includes Indigenous people. And I wanted to... We seem often seem to tangle these groups together uh, when we talk about them in political theory. And I wanted to say that actually I think there's two quite separate things going on here. When it comes to the sort of things we've been talking about so far, we're talking about relative institutional disadvantages, the fact that the majorities have shaped the institutions to their advantage, you know, the courts, schools, hospitals, military, police, government department, dress code, safety regulations, all these things have been shaped in favour in favor of the majority. It's the case when it comes to 
national minorities that they also face the same problem like indigenous australians indigenous canadians and other groups are faced with the problem that institutions are shaped in aren't shaped in their image but they have more than that when it comes to a claim of wanting to do things differently basically the claim i think from what i think of as multicultural multicultural minority rights is these institutions are disadvantaging us we want the institutions to not disadvantage us anymore we want to be able to be included to use patty's words um, whether that inclusion takes the form of rights or removing majority privilege is a, is a different question. But when it comes to national minorities, even if the, these, these groups were included, that's not the end of the claim because the source of the claim is different. The source of the claim comes from some sense of historic injustice and a historical injustice that won't simply go away when we reshape the institutions to, to, include, the, to include these groups. So uh, it's it obviously... Often when it comes to Indigenous people, a, um, a, a, a non-seeding of sovereignty, a, a dispossession, and normally some sort of historic and justice historical discrimination. So these are the sort of sources of claims that are driving a lot of uh, minority rights when it comes to national minorities. And because of that, I think I want to put them to the side and say those minority rights might actually be justified in some cases. It might be the case that some national minorities should be given distinct rights in a way that we wouldn't give to multicultural groups such as the Sikhs and Muslims, etc. Um, this is not to say that they wouldn't face many of the same problems when it comes to construction, etc. But these, but these may be worth putting up with because of the claim is much stronger because it is a claim of injustice. Sorry, you see, you're saying that the, the the problems of identifying who's in that minority would still be there, but you should overlook it because it's so important. Look, the problems of who's yeah, absolutely. So the problem of who's who's in the minority is still going to exist. This problem doesn't yeah. go away because of this distinction. Um, but this is this is you know this is doing politics on the ground. You're going to have to you're going to have to trade off some things. So yes, it still might be the case that you can include a lot when it comes to national minorities without granting without granting rights. So it might be that you can generalise particular things. You might be able to generalise. I think I give the example in the book of particular kind of circle sentencing that occurs when it comes to in court cases for, for Indigenous youth and the idea that that's where people sit around in, 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 in a circle with their elders and, and that's the way that they're tried. And I say that there's certain jurisdictions where that's only, an, that's only an option for Indigenous people, but there have been jurisdictions such as the Northern Territory over time where this was an option for all young people. So once again, it's something to say, here's this, other, here's this second way of doing things. Let's say anyone can choose it. Once again, that sort of helps, if you like, a little mm -hmm. bit with the lessening of the construction of this identity. It opens it up to others, but while still opening this uh, this form of inclusion. And Paddy, what's your take on this? So I have a couple of thoughts with respect to how Peter has just characterised the questions of Indigenous rights. I'm, I'm as anybody as Peter would be if he grew up in Canada. Everybody on the left in Canada is strongly in favor of indigenous self-determination for many of the reasons that Peter has described, which is to say historical injustices. In fact, the practice of genocide against indigenous populations as a matter of sort of Canadian colonial policy is what drives the demand for self-determination and the land back movement in Canada, which is the movement that is demanding that the Canadian colonial state return land to indigenous peoples for their own control. But the, the thing, I mean, I have two thoughts that I'd like to uh, to add to this conversation. One is that I'd like to press it back to Peter with respect to how do you identify who is Indigenous and what what kinds of strategies should a, should a state take towards that question in an Indigenous 
cases. And I'm interested in that precisely because it's also a live issue in Canada. What should we do when people claim identity, uh, Indigenous identity, and then want a benefit that is reserved for people with Indigenous identity? So there's a, this is a live conversation. I'd be curious to know how Peter resolves it, because I think that Peter's answer to that question is one that we can apply more generally to cultures, but I'll have to see what that answer is. But the other thing I want to know about, notice about Indigenous self-determination, which is the, the primary thing that is demanded in Canada, and it has a wide range of meanings with respect to how, how self-governing an Indigenous community will be, whether they'll be economically, politically self-determining or only uh, self-determining around some particular issues. That's, that's a matter of, uh, for each ind individual Indigenous community to determine in, uh, in conversation with the Canadian state. But there's another question, which is that once Indigenous communities claim self-determination and once that right is respected, once it is agreed by the Canadian state or a province that self-determination is required, permitted, uh, must be supported by the larger state, then Indigenous communities ask for exemptions. So, for example, Indigenous communities ask for exemptions with respect to freedom of movement laws, uh, whether or not they can say that uh, settler settler Canadians, white Canadians, can be denied the right to live on Indigenous territory. Can they, or here's another example, which is quite, uh, which, which is happening in multiple jurisdictions across Canada. Um, there are fishing regulations, regulations about how many fish fishers can take out of lakes and oceans. And it is claimed by Indigenous communities that Indigenous communities should not be subject to the same limits. They should be exempt from the limits because historically the, the cultural, their cultural practices included fishing and therefore as part of respect for and self-determination of Indigenous communities, they need to be exempt from a law which applies more generally. And so I think, I think Indigenous communities, even if we grant, even if I took the direction that Peter did and said, fine about immigrant communities, but Indigenous communities are different, they're national minorities, they're subject to different kinds of rules, regulations, normative justifications, we nevertheless end up in cases, questions with respect to when we want to exempt Indigenous communities. And so Peter might say to me, well, look, we've got a, a question about fishing, um, if, indigenous, if Indigenous communities can, on cultural grounds, say they ought to be entitled to engage in more fishing, so then we have to let everybody do it, then the result is there will be no fish for anybody because uh, the lakes and rivers will be overfished. And so we don't want that. And so the question is, can we reach a compromise according to which Indigenous fishers are permitted uh, to, fish, to fish more than settler fishers? simply because of cultural reasons, historical cultural reasons. And in that case, I think there are reasons to, again, in this case, to allow for exemptions on cultural grounds. Yes. So, so Peter, there, there you are. I mean, if you're going to let uh, people self-define, or, you know, or if you're going to sort of overcome the difficulties of defining who's in a group uh, for Indigenous people, why not for everyone? And, you know, what about the, the, you know, the point about fishing and whether uh, an exemption should be allowed on these particular grounds. Thanks. Yeah, I guess I'll just go back and underline the point I was trying to make here, which is that minority, multicultural minority rights are different from national uh, minority rights. And they're a very separate issue. And we keep running them together. And I think they need to be kept separate. So yes, there, there are overlaps as described when it comes to deciding who's in and who's out. But my motivation in, in this book was to deal with these, the, the, the questions that we, we've got on, on, on Sikhs, on immigrants, 
on 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 Orthodox Jews, on all these sorts of things. And I wanted to say there, we don't need to recognise particular people's ways of life. We don't need to do that. We can get around all the problems by removing majority privilege. Um, that gets us a very very long way, and I think that's worth underlining. The fact that gets us a long way. Uh, what I've done, though, is said we have this remainder, which is national minorities. This is an important area. It's not an area I have a massive contribution to make, though. Um, and it is an area where you're going to have to deal with some of these issues. They're not going to go away. Of course, sometimes in this area, you can remove majority privilege. So as I described in the circle sentencing case, you can generalise the exemption. But clearly, as Patty pushed, there's going to be cases where you're going to have to make a decision. I don't think they're going to be that common. Um, that they will exist and we're going to have to deal with them then. And, of course, if I was writing about national minorities, I would I would deal with these issues, I would come down with this thing. But in the end, um, that's not the contribution I'm trying to make. The contribution I'm trying to make is about dealing with multicultural issues, the sort of ones that we get very excited about with people wearing different clothes on the street, et cetera, et cetera, wanting to do things differently, wanting to wear their turbans, et cetera, et cetera. And in these cases, I want to say, is there... Is there a justification for the barrier they're facing? Yes or no. If there's not a justification for the barrier they're facing, then it should be removed. Yeah, um, so, when it comes yeah. to national minorities, the, it's it's different. It is a case of historical injustice, as, as Paddy rightly said. Yeah, but, but, but Paddy, when you get to the point of self-determination, I mean, obviously that can take many different forms, I guess, and it would depend you know, mm. in, in, in what areas. But if it's a very you know, complete self-determination, uh, where does that leave your hopes for political inclusion? Is there a con- is there a, is there a conflict there? I, I mean, I don't think so. I, I mean, at least certainly not in the in the Canadian context, which which is the one that I'm most familiar with. Which is to say that, for example, uh, the, the 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 most self determining Indigenous community that we have in Canada is the the Inuit community that is living in Nunavut, which is which uh, in the late 1990s the the decision was to carve out a part of the Canadian North and to make it a separate territory, which would be governed just like provinces are in Canada uh, entirely by Indigenous folks. I mean, non-Indigenous people live there also, but it is. Um, uh, uh, majority indigenous community, and so that it, so and so what that had the effect of doing was in fact integrating indigenous Canadian indigenous people in Canada into the Canadian Federation rather than excluding them. And I think that I think that it's I, I think that g- given the structure of Canada uh, and and the location of indigenous communities, that there is no indigenous community that is that is seriously claiming the solution is full and complete separation in the form of secession. What they're actually claiming is um, the right to be self-determining over certain subspaces or certain areas of life. And, and, and each indigenous community will have to, has, is undergoing presently um, discussions with the federal government for the right way to characterize the cooperative um, agreements that, will, that, that, uh, that, that, that are best for that community. Some communities are small, so they can't be economically self-sufficient. Some are larger, so they can be. Some are overextended over large territories, some only small territories. So there's different questions, and they have to be negotiated on a, on a community-by-community um, basis. I, I, I'd like to add just two th- thoughts, to, two questions to sort of throw them back at Peter. I guess one, one disagreement that Peter and I have is with respect to whether it's hard to identify what a culture is. And Peter says, as I understood him, 
you know, it's actually, it's decently hard. Who is, is it the community recognition? Is it individual recognition, right? So like if you have a community, an Amish community or an Orthodox Jewish community that kicks somebody out, is it because of violations? Does that mean that person is no longer Amish, no longer Jewish? What if that person still self-identifies as Amish or Jewish? Who do we listen to and so on, right? So I think that there are cases where there's gonna be questions, but in very general terms, in diverse states, who is and isn't a member of a culture is decently clear and people either feel themselves to be members of members of culture or they don't and they claim benefits on the basis of those cultures or they don't and that is not usually controversial this is why i'm interested in peter's answer to the indigenous question because somewhat uniquely in my view the question of we call them pretendians in canada people who claim indigenous origin but who don't in fact have it um, how do we adjudicate this right because it would be very uncomfortable for me to say oh, you're claiming indigenous identity and I'm a settler Canadian and you're an indigenous person in Canada, I don't believe that you're really indigenous. That would be extremely uncomfortable, right? So who is doing the adjudicating? And we, the, the Canadian state is going through the difficult effort of sort of establishing norms and norms and procedures by which people can have their identity assessed by relevant people who are trustworthy in the Indigenous community, the set of documents that would have to be provided, the history that would be, have to be demonstrated. And that's being done um, collaboratively between the Canadian lawmakers and Indigenous communities so that the result is a system that allows for the proper identification of of indigenous peoples with respect to the benefits that they would thereby be able to claim. Peter, your response? I mean, it seems to be a reasonable question. How are you going to go about uh, coping with, you know, people on the margins? So, with a very good example, people excluded from a community. Uh, if you're saying that those communities should be given tr special treatment, then you have to define who's in them. I, I, I guess that's my point is I'm not defining who's in them. That's that's the point. I'm trying to avoid defining who's in them. I'm trying to stay away from the indigenous issues because that's not what I'm talking about. I know, but it's sort of and, it's, and, it, and they're very it controversial tests, in this. Yeah, yeah but it's, I, it tests your views, doesn't it? So it's sort of um, is this reasonable. It to does, ask? but I'm trying to say that I'm talking about multicultural minority rights here. Um, mm. When it comes to the indigenous stuff, I don't feel like I'm qualified. In Australia, it's a quite a big deal to talk about this as a mm -hmm. non-indigenous person. So mm -hmm. I don't feel okay being pressed on that. But when it comes to multicultural minority rights, I, I would say that people who've been excluded like that, the, the, the Amish or, or, or the Hasidic in this situation, it, it is a problem of what, once they're kicked out, what actually happen, what happens to them. It, it, is, it is definitely a problem if they want to follow their way of rights, way of life. Once again, I come back to my point that they should be able to do the thing they want to be able to do. If, if, the, majority is, if the majority of institutions are stopping them, then there's a problem. Can I ask you both as we close this, when you look ahead, uh, not so much to the politics of how all this is developing in in these, uh, well, in, uh, in the West, let's say these, these three Western countries, but how ideas about it are changing. I mean, you've been following this, obviously, for, for years. You've been thinking about it. You've been writing about it. How is the academic debate on these issues changing, would you say, Patty, first of all? Thanks for that question. Uh, I, I think, and I think it's a really good one. I think the direction that uh, the deliberations are going is towards um, uh, more contextual and more um, more case-specific evaluations of what's going on. So I think that there's a lot less 
uh, in the 1990s and the 2000s, there was a lot of sort of generalized kinds of comments about how immigrant communities must be treated this way. They're entitled to these clusters of rights, not these ones. They ought to do these things and not those ones. And I think that the, the, the literature in general has moved and will continue in the future to move towards uh, more nuanced stories about what is the appropriate treatment in particular cases, taking into account the contextual considerations. What should we do in Middle England when there's a long-standing British-Pakistani community that is having a conflict with rugby players? What are the specific questions that are what have that have arisen there? What's the history of the relations between the communities? Why is the mosque there? Why is the rugby uh, court, uh, rugby? What do, what do rugby players do? Is it a field? Rugby fields there? Uh, pitch, 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 pitch. Sorry about that. Um, uh, so right, so 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 that we have sort of more fine-grained analysis of particular cases with the context and the constraints that shape that particular case, and so that we can find resolutions for those cases, which may may or may not be generalizable to other jurisdictions so that the so that what's happening is sort of a, a movement with respect with respect to sort of analytic methods in multicultural political theory rather than conclusions about what ought to be done in the in the in, in particular cases I, I think you would say that that thing means things are moving in the direction you'd favor right well yes uh, I would say yes that, exactly yes. yeah yeah and so Peter are you troubled by this um, or do you not agree that that is the way it's going look I'd take a slightly different approach and say that when it comes to what's actually happening in the world, I think it's moving much more towards what I've called active indifference, the sort of position I've put of removing majority privilege. Um, just to give one example from the book that I gave, we, we have issues over voting, for example, when it comes to which days people should vote. Uh, in Australia, we have voting on a Saturday, same in New Zealand, Latvia, Malta. This was seen as a problem for Orthodox Jews uh, discharging their rights. Uh, and, and duty to, to vote. So w what should we do about it? According to the sort of standard multiculturalist move, the sort of thing that Patty's been supporting, we need to grant an exemption to these Orthodox Jews. They need to be said, you're an Orthodox Jew, we recognise you, you can vote in a different way on a different day. What's happened over time in, in, in places, in, in reality, is we've, we've said, well, anyone that has a good reason and they can self-determine the good reason. They don't need to say it's a religious reason. Anyone that has a good reason can vote on another day. So we have pre-poll and postal voting, something that's now taken up, at least in Australia, in large numbers. So people go, people are working on the Saturday, they've got kids sport, they've got other things going on, and they go and vote in a different way. This means that the Orthodox Jews are now fully accommodated. They haven't lost anything, but all of us have gained something. So to me, what's actually happened in practice is we've moved away from this rights and exemption approach, the sort of thing that Patty argues for, but in many sections of her book actually goes for just a generalised approach. And we've gone for this generalised approach. We've said, do we need this thing? Is this restriction saying everybody must vote on a Saturday essential or not? Guess what? It's not essential. It's just a general guideline. You've got a good reason to, to not do it. You don't do it. And we all get along okay. So I think in practice, what's happened is we've moved away from multicultural minority rights and we've moved to greater accommodation. People can now do the thing they want to do without the restriction, without some sort of recognition. And I guess that's what's been interesting in writing this, is realising the theory that I'm putting forward here is actually matching what's happening in reality in multicultural contexts. OK, well, look, thank you both very much. Uh, and uh, we, it's worked, the technology's worked, and you've uh, produced a very interesting book and a very interesting discussion. So I'm very grateful to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Us.